is Our American Stories, and now it's time for our American Dreamers series. Where we brought you the incredible life stories of folks like Mario Andretti, Ed Renzi, and by the way, Ed went from making 85 cents an hour at McDonald's, rose all the way up to be the CEO there. So started at the minimum wage, right up to CEO. And Mario Andretti, my goodness, what a story. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Go into the search bar and hit Mario Andretti or go to the American Dreamers segments under topics and you won't believe his life story. It does not get better as an American story. By the way, we also brought you Justice Scalia's story when he passed away. And one of his best friends we learned in that story was Judge and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, one from the right, one from the left, and yet they were dear friends, a model for all Americans to follow, a coming together of sorts. And today we bring you the life story of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which on the surface you might think could be boring, given we're talking about a judge, but you're about to be surprised by this fascinating life of the second woman ever to be on the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor from Arizona was the first. And Ginsburg is also the first Jewish woman on the Supreme Court, a twofer. For the hour, we'll be bringing you highlights of her interview with the Academy of Achievement's terrific podcast, What It Takes. She first talked about the influence of her mother. My mother was a voracious reader, and one gift that she gave me was loving to read. My favorite memory was sitting on her lap. She would read books to me. We had a daily, a, a weekly excursion to the public library, and she would leave me in the library in the children's section, have her hair done, and then pick me up when I had my three or four books for the week. Ruth went to Cornell University and met her husband, Marty, there, and she said that he was the very first man she dated who actually cared that she had a brain. And he also cared enough to try to teach her to drive, a Herculean task. I learned to drive um, in, at Cornell. Uh, I practiced on Marty's gray Chevrolet. I failed, I failed the driver's test five times. <laughs> I had to get a second learner's permit. <laughs> so and Marty, having, having infinite patience when I was learning to drive, then when we were married, he would never allow me to drive with, if he was in the car uh, unless he was deathly ill, unless he had a gout attack. <laughs> On June 23rd, 1954, Ruth and Marty got married. We were married in Marty's home, and his mother took me into the bedroom, her bedroom, and said, Dear... I'd like to tell you the secret of a happy marriage. Yes, what is the secret? It helps sometimes to be a little deaf. And I found that advice, it stood me in very good stead, not only in a wonderful marriage that lasted well over half a century, But in every workplace I've served, dealing with my faculty colleagues when I was a law teacher, and even now with my colleagues on the Supreme Court. When an unkind word is said, a thoughtless word, best to tune out. Best to tune out. Great advice, by the way, because it'll pass. 
it'll pass. And it might have just been said in the heat of the moment. Soon after their marriage, they had their first child, Jane, and later both enrolled at Harvard Law School in 1956. Ruth was the only mom at Harvard Law and one of only nine women out of a class of 500. The nine of us were greeted by the dean, Dean Aaron Griswold, at a dinner he held in his home. He invited the nine women, and each of us had a faculty escort. Uh, My escort was Herbert Wexler, later my colleague at Columbia. He was a man who looked more like God than anyone I'd ever seen. (laughs) I was totally taken with him, but but intimidated because he was so brilliant. Anyway, we had a meal. It was not a memorable meal, and there was no wine because the dean was a teetotaler. And then he had the chairs in his living room arranged in a semicircle and asked each of us in turn to say what we were doing at the Harvard Law School occupying a seat that could be held by a man. And most of us were embarrassed by the question. But years later, when the dean became a friend, I realized what he was trying to do. The dean was not known for his sense of humor. Harvard didn't admit women until 1950-51 was the first year the law school admitted women. There were still doubting Thomases on the faculty. And the dean wanted to be armed with stories from the women themselves about what they would do with a a law degree. So that's why he asked the question. Of course, my... The, the women in my class didn't exactly comprehend that at the time. But so, one of them gave him a perfect answer. Mine was far from perfect. But, but this was Flora Schnall. She had a distinguished career as a lawyer. She said, Dean Griswold, there are nine of us. Well, really, Ruth Ginsburg doesn't count for this purpose. So there are eight. And there were over 500 of them. What better place to find a man? <laughs> <laughs> the, the dean, I think, was horrified by that answer. But <laughs> she, she was the only one who treated it with the way it should have been treated. You bet. She just teased him. She just teased him and went on and did what she had to do. Those were not the good old days, by the way. And now women have every access to law schools. They didn't back then. And today there are more women than men in law schools. Go figure that. And that's progress. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the American Dreamers segment. We've done Justice Antonin Scalia. And we need to do his best friend on the court, Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg. More on her incredible life story here on Our American Stories. This 
is Our American Stories, and we continue our American Dreamers segment with a story of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we learned earlier, my goodness, those numbers really are staggering. When she went to Harvard Law, she was one of only nine women out of 500 students and the only mom. And times have changed. Well, here is Ruth Bader Ginsburg on why she studied in bathrooms instead of at the library with the rest of the students. Cornell in the early 50s was a great, considered a great school for girls because there were four men to every woman. It was a strict quota, quota system, yeah. and that meant the women were ever so much smarter than the boys. But it wasn't the thing to do to show how smart you were. It was much better that you you gave the impression that you weren't working at all, that you were a party girl. So I did my studying in various bathrooms on the campus. Then when I went back to the dormitory, I didn't have homework to do. And as if Ruth didn't have enough challenges, the only mom and only one of nine women at Harvard Law, as we just said, her husband, Marty, was then diagnosed with testicular cancer. We never thought about the possibility or never talked about the possibility that he might not survive. We were concentrating on getting him through the third year. And by the way, Marty went to classes for only two weeks, the last two weeks of the semester. In that semester, he got the highest grades that he ever got in law school because he had the best tutors. And Harvard was known as a competitive place. My experience was the opposite. His classmates, my classmates, rallied around the two of us. And he got individual tutorials to help prepare him for the exams. How did I get through it? Well, I was able to get by with very little sleep. Because of the radiation, Marty couldn't ingest anything till midnight. And so between midnight and 2, we he had dinner, my bad hamburger usually, and then he would dictate to me his, his senior paper, and then he'd go back to sleep, and it was about 2 o'clock, then I'd take out the books and start reading what I needed to read to be prepared for classes the next day. My goodness, you can imagine that kind of a challenge, and having been through law school myself, I know what that first and even second year is like, and it just seems like you're overwhelmed. You're learning a new language, practically, a lot of Latin. You're learning to think in ways you've never had to think before. You're around people who are all tops in their class. You're worried about whether you're going to make it to whatever is going to happen in the summers. And then on top of that, oh my goodness, she finds out her husband has cancer. And yet what we learned here is that love, love is very powerful. And the generosity of all these students, you know, you never know what comes from these things. And believe me, law school, like so many of these uh, graduate programs, become very and fiercely competitive. But something else was tapped because of this tragedy, because of this problem. And suddenly these seemingly, uh, these seeming competitors by your side were suddenly your friends and were suddenly taking you along and, and moving you along. Well, Marty graduated on time and a year earlier than Ruth. So when he got a job in New York, Ruth transferred to Columbia Law and became the first woman ever to be on two major law reviews, the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review. By the way, that just proves that adversity can be overcome. 
She found it a lot harder to find a job, though. She was a woman. She was Jewish. Two strikes against her. Supreme Court Justice Felix Frank Felix Frankfurter flat out said that he wouldn't consider a woman working for him. She found academia more welcoming and first taught at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And on the side, she took up legal cases that advanced equal rights for women. And her very first, her very first case was a rather unusual one, given her passion. Marty came into the bedroom where I worked and said, Ruth, I think you should read this decision. And my response was, Marty, you know that I don't read tax cases. He said, read this one. I did. It was the story of a man who was never married. He took care of his then 93-year-old mother. And he took what the Internal Revenue Code allowed as a babysitter's deduction, which you could take for the care of an elderly, infirm relative of any age. So he took this $600 deduction, and he was audited by the IRS. And they said, you can't take that deduction. He said, oh, I've been told that there's an elder care, just like there's a baby care. The people who qualified for the deduction were any woman or a widowed or divorced man. Charlie Martz was a never-married man. He took his case to the tax court pro se. Meaning for himself. He represented himself, and he filed a brief, which was a model. No lawyer would have done such a thing, but it was just right. He said... If I had been a dutiful daughter, I would get this deduction. I'm a dutiful son. This makes no sense. And the tax court judge, in his opinion, said, I glean that the taxpayer is making a constitutional argument. But the next words were to the effect, everyone knows that the Internal Revenue Code is immune from constitutional attack. So as soon as I read that decision, I said, Marty, let's take it. And that's how Charles E. Moritz became our, our client. Great story. And what was Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinking in taking this case? And why would this case that was about a man slyly help women? I call the Moritz brief the grandparent brief. First, I, I understood the likely reception to my argument, and that is gender-based discrimination, what was then called sex-based discrimination. What are you talking about? Women have the best of all possible worlds. Think of jury duty. Yes, we don't put them on the jury rolls, but if they want to serve, they can go to the clerk's office and sign up, and, and we will add them. So they don't have to serve. Women are on a pedestal. They are sheltered. They are protected. And men have to go out into the large, cold world and earn a living. The, the laws, the statutes, both state and federal, reflected that difference. A good name for it is the separate spheres mentality. The sphere of earning bread, supporting the family, that was the man's world. And 
the women's world, women were to take care of the house and raise the children, that dichotomy. And the, and the laws were shaped to fit that. That's why any woman could get the deduction in Charles E. Moritz's case, because women, it was well known, could take care of incapacitated relatives, no matter what the age. But men, in fact, that was one of the arguments the government made in Moritz, that he hadn't proved that he was capable of taking care of his mother so that the babysitter was a substitute for himself. Women would not have to prove that because everybody knows that women could take care of elderly parents. That's so, so what we needed to show was that the image of women being on a pedestal, there was something wrong with that picture. And that, in fact, as Justice Brennan put it years later, the pedestal all too often turned out to be a cage. So it was to try to promote the understanding that these so-called protective laws more often than not ended up restricting what women could do, sparing men's jobs from women's competition. So how to say that in a polite way to get across the picture. That was, that was the challenge. And quite a challenge it was. Ruth Bader Ginsburg won that case and then co-founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project. She continued to find it helpful to have male clients when she came before male judges and argued that laws had no business distinguishing between men and women. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment the life of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And check out our hour on Justice Antonin Scalia. A remarkable story, a remarkable life. Justice Scalia saw the Constitution strictly, a strict constructionist. Justice Ginsburg, more of a living Constitution type. One a liberal, Ginsburg. One a conservative, Scalia. Dear friends, the two of them. They'd, they'd be very happy knowing Justice Scalia from heaven. Ginsburg here on Earth, knowing that we're doing this segment and have done both of their stories. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our American Dreamer segment. And sometimes it's entrepreneurial stories. Many times it is. People who come here with a dream and start a business. And sometimes it's a guy who wants to be a race car driver and comes to this country with nothing and becomes the greatest race car driver of the 20th century. And I think we can say that with ease because that's what everybody in the motor sports world said about Mario Andretti. And we've done this with Justice Scalia. You couldn't rise to a higher place than he did with a law degree. And now we're doing it with Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg as well. Two very different people who saw the law very differently and the Constitution very differently. And by the way, we're also dear friends, which we'll get to in a bit later. Here, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is talking about her most famous legal case from her activist period in her life. Stephen Weisenfeld's 
case was even more compelling than Charles E. Morris. Stephen Weisenfeld's wife died in childbirth. She had been a school teacher. Um, she earned slightly more than he did. When she died, uh, Stephen went to the Social Security office. He thought that if he worked part-time up to the, uh, the ceiling that Social Security allowed you to earn, the Social Security benefits plus what he could earn on top of that. He could just about make it and take care of his child and not go to work full-time till the child was in school a full day. So he went to the Social Security office and asked for what he was told were child-in-care benefits. And he was told, we're very sorry, Mr. Weisenfeld. Those are mother's benefits. They're not available to fathers. So he was the person who immediately felt the effect of the law. But where did that discrimination begin? It began with the woman as wage earner. Women paid the same Social Security tax that men paid, but it didn't net for their family the same protection. Same tax, but unequal protection. So, so we could say, Stephen Weisenfeld is feeling the effect of this discrimination, but it began with his wife, the wage earner, who was not treated as a full wage earner. She was a woman wage earner, and that meant she was secondary, she was earning pin money, no Social Security benefits for her family when she dies. The case made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it was the first time Ruth Bader Ginsburg argued a case before our nation's highest court. And by the way, almost no lawyers in this country ever get to experience that. I mean, less than 1%, the 1% of the 1%. And it is hard, and you're facing these nine judges, and you open up your mouth, and bam, here come the questions. You've got everything mapped out in your head, and it doesn't matter. Very stressful, very stressful for even seasoned attorneys. Well, it had to be even more stressful for a newbie. She refused to eat that first day, and that first day of the argument and its Supreme Court, and here's why. Because I was afraid I wouldn't hold down whatever I had. I was tremendously, terribly, terribly nervous. I had a great first sentence prepared in advance, well-memorized, but I was, um, well, nervous is an understatement. (laughs) But then I had this moment when I looked up at the bench and thought to myself, these are the most important judges in the United States. And I have a captive audience. They have no place to go. They have to listen listen to me. And so then I switched to my teacher mode. And I told them things that they hadn't thought about, about how the, the pedestal often turns out to be a cage. You bet. Just a quick pivot, and what a change it probably was for her, thinking like the teacher rather than the lawyer. How do you out-lawyer those lawyers? By the way, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would argue before the Supreme Court five more times, and get this, she won five out of her six cases. She then decided she wanted to be a judge. And in 1980, President Jimmy Carter appointed her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And by the way, that's a feeder court 
to the Supreme Court. Some of the greats have come from that court. And the nature of the work that comes there is a lot of federal appellate work as it relates to the administrative state, the EPA, the FDA, so on and so forth. In 1993, President Bill Clinton appointed her to the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. She would be the second female justice in the court's history, and the first, Sandra Day O'Connor, would be her peer on the court. And despite them being appointees from very different political parties, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said they meant much more to each other than being merely peers. She was almost like a big sister to me. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor is a truly great woman. When I came on board, she told me just what I needed to know to be able to manage those first weeks. She didn't douse me with a whole bunch of stuff that I would uh, that I couldn't possibly ret- retain. Uh, at so many stages of my life, she gave me good counsel. When I had colorectal cancer, Sandra had had breast cancer. She had massive surgery. She was in court hearing argument nine days after her surgery. So her advice to me was, Ruth, you're having chemotherapy. Schedule it for Friday. So then by Monday, you'll be, you'll be over it. You'll be over the bad effects. That's how she was. Anything that came her way, she would deal with it. She would just do it. Then Ruth Bader Ginsburg told the What It Takes podcast about another one of the justices and another one appointed by a Republican president, the late Antonin Scalia. And she started by talking about the Virginia Military Institute ruling that declared women have to be admitted to the historically men-only school. Scalia was the only dissenter of the nine justices, and thus wrote the dissenting opinion. Ginsburg was writing the majority opinion. Scalia, her friend, did her a favor that he didn't really have to do. He came uh, into my chambers with what he said was the penultimate draft of his dissent in the VMI case. He said he wasn't quite ready to circulate it to the court and needed more polishing, but... The term was getting on toward the end, and he wanted to give me as much time as he possibly could to answer his dissent. I was about to go off to my circuit judicial conference. I took the opinion draft with me. I started reading it on the plane to Albany, and it was, even for Scalia, it was a real zinger. (laughs) It, It was. And so I spent the whole weekend... Um, thinking about how I would, in a restrained and moderate way, answer these comments. I mean, he took me to task for everything. I had a footnote in which I referred to the Charlottesville campus of the University of Virginia. He said, we must excuse this justice who is probably more familiar with schools in New York where they may have a campus here and a campus there. There is no Charlottesville campus. There is only the University of Virginia, period. (laughs) Ginsburg was then asked if her opinion was better than Scalia's. Oh, of course, because the greatest thing for me was to have a Scalia dissent. 
he would point out all the soft spots, and that would give me an opportunity to improve the opinion, to make it more persuasive than it was before I got this stimulating dissent. And that's the point, folks. It's not personal. Scalia always said that, too. We're just having an argument here among friends, sharpening each other's arguments, making them better. And let's go out and have a drink. When we come back, the rest of the story, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, part of our American Dreamers segment here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, our final segment, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's story. Her friendship with Scalia, for many people who wouldn't know any better, seemed unlikely, but it was actually legendary, and became the subject of an opera, and the opera was among their favorite pleasures to indulge in together. Ginsburg called them best buddies, buddies who once rode an elephant together in, in, in India and occasionally publicly debated each other, and without pulling punches. Here's a highlight from their debate at the Smithsonian. You know, I've sat with four colleagues who believed the death penalty is unconstitutional. My goodness, the death penalty was the only penalty for a felony when the Eighth Amendment, the prohibiting cruel and unusual punishments, was adopted. It was, it was the definition of a felony. A felony was a crime punishable by death. Every well, state... These justices thought, since I'm on the Supreme Court, it's up to me to decide this significant moral question because I went to Harvard Law School, maybe even Yale Law School. I must must know the answers to these questions. I I consider it an abstract question that I don't have to give the answer to. What I do know is you cannot have a death penalty that's administered with an even hand. That's the problem. Who gets the death penalty? It's a roulette wheel, and that's not a system of justice. Now, I don't think anybody would want to go back to the days where Mm. you stole a horse off with your head. This is the roulette wheel amendment? This, this, the the question, and the court has said, you couldn't arbitrarily administer the death penalty. You couldn't say every fourth murder will get the death penalty. You could not have that kind of arbitrary administration of justice. Ruth, if you have a jury in criminal trials, you're going to have arbitrariness. It's the nature of a jury. One jury Isn't may be more sympathetic to the defendant than another. So you want to abolish trial by jury and have everything decided by judges who went to Harvard and Yale? It's a, who, who will likely come out the same way? <laughs> when it's a question of life or death, you can't have that kind of disparity. Well, the, the people thought you could, and I don't think it's our place to say that you can't. Yeah, but the people at one time thought that 20 lashes were okay, and we don't 
think that's okay. Yeah, and I think as far as the Constitution is concerned, 20 lashes are still okay. <laughs> the, the, the more ridiculous you make the example, the less likely it is to occur because the people have changed. They have made the decision to change. It hasn't been imposed on them by, uh, by a Supreme Court. Anyway. By the way, Justice almost always won these arguments head-to-head. It was fascinating. I saw one at Georgetown where the audience was preconceived. I think their notions were those with Ginsburg, but they'd never heard the Scalia argument the way Scalia does it. And he sort of just takes apart her arguments. There's just not much there. But they loved each other. You could tell. She wasn't offended that he was going after her argument. He wasn't offended at her. They were just going at it. And I think Scalia ate her lunch in that one. But again, other people listening might be thinking, oh, Lee, you're just so ridiculous. By the way, we don't do that kind of show. Thank goodness. I go to turn on talk, you know, your typical talkers for that. You know, they, they come on before us, after us, and that's, they do that beautifully. That's not what we do here. But that was just an example of how those two would go out in the public together and yet then go off and play poker and go to the opera together as well. And that's a fundamental part of the American character that I think we've lost. That we're allowed to just have an argument and then let, let's forget that and go on and do other things. We're going to close with some clips of Ruth Bader Ginsburg talking about her marriage to Marty because this was the most important part of her life. And he was a master chef, a master tax lawyer, and the biggest booster of his wife. Marty was always, always my biggest booster. Um. He was a remarkable man. He was so um, sure of his own ability that he never regarded me as any kind of threat. Uh, On the contrary, I suppose he thought, well, if I decided to, I wanted to spend my life with her, she must be pretty good. So so he he was at every stage of my life my, my strongest supporter. Marty contracted cancer and in 2010 was near death. And his bride, Ruth, well, she found something unexpected. I found this letter in the drawer of the stand next to Marty's bed in the hospital. When we knew it was the end and I was taking him home so that he could die at home rather than in the hospital... Um, I was just checking to see that we had everything he brought with him. And on a yellow pad, there was a letter to me. And it reads, My dearest Ruth, you are the only person I have loved in my life, setting aside a bit parents and kids and their kids. And I have admired and loved you almost since the day we first met at Cornell some 56 years ago. It was wrong about 56. It was nearly 60 years. We were married for 56 years. What a treat it has been to watch you progress to the very top of the legal world. I will be in Johns Hopkins Medical Center until Friday, June 25th, I believe. And between then and now, I shall think hard on my remaining health and life and consider on balance the time has come for me to toughen out or to take leave of life 
because the loss of quality now simply overwhelms. I hope you will support where I come out, but I understand you may not. I will not love you a job less. And just sign Marty. On June 27, 2010, Marty passed from this earth. And on the very next day, Ruth was at the Supreme Court on the bench announcing an important decision that she wrote. But she didn't have to be there. Someone could have announced the decision for her. The Chief Justice could have announced the decision. But I remembered to um, my pancreatic cancer surgery. I was home and recuperating for about two weeks while the court was not sitting and then the court went back to sit and I I told Marty I can't do this I won't be able to sit still for two hours listening to arguments and he said yes you will and it, it was because of the strength that he gave me that I showed up in court that morning and I think and miraculously I was able to sit still so I thought, what would Marty want me to do? And that's why I came to the court and and read the summary of my decision from the bench. What would Marty want me to do? A couple of things Ruth Bader Ginsburg Ruth Bader Ginsburg has written over the years. Here was something she wrote about the time she was rejected by a law firm that was looking for its token woman, and had hired one. Check that box off back then. She said this, and it tells you a lot about the nature of her character. You think about what would have happened. Suppose I had gotten a job as a permanent associate at a law firm. Probably I would have climbed up the ladder, and today I would be a retired partner. So often in life, things that you regard as an impediment turn out to be great good fortune. She says this about having it all. I just read Anne Marie Slaughter's book. She talked about, we don't have it all. Who does? I've had it all in the course of my life, but at different times. It bothers me when people say, to make it to the top of the tree, you have to give up a family. Her husband Marty told the New York Times, quote, I've been supportive of my wife since the beginning of time, and Ruth has been supportive of me. That's not sacrifice. That's family. And last but not least, on the work-life balance. My work-life balance was a term not yet coined in the years my children were young. It is aptly descriptive of the time distribution I experienced. My success in law school, I have no doubt, was in large measure because of baby Jane. I attended classes and studied diligently until four in the afternoon. The next hours were Jane's time, spent at the park, playing silly games or singing funny songs, reading picture books and A.A. Milne poems, and bathing and feeding her. After Jane's bedtime, I returned to the law books with renewed will. Each part of my life provided respite from the other and gave me a sense of proportion that my classmates, my 
childless classmates, I think she was saying here specifically, trained only on law studies lacked. It was an advantage, she said, to have that child in law school. Again, it's all a matter of your mind and what you do with these things. And my goodness, there's no doubt in my mind that that is true, what, what Judge Ginsburg was saying. I was a law student. If I had a child, I know I would have been a better and more focused law student. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. A great life, a life well lived. stories and our crew is always looking for well different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry and this one stumbled on our desk and it's called anger rooms a smashing new way to relieve stress this was in the new york times and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities and donna alexander well she knows a lot about anger rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things. Okay, um, well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background, so um, both my mother and my father uh, were Army, uh, they're Army veterans, and I spent all of my summers in uh, New York, um, in the Bronx, so um, I kind of got a... <laughs> Uh, a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military uh, family. And um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son uh, that are 10 and 12 years old. That's fantastic. And tell me about the you know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a, a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Samson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology, and I mm -hmm. bounced around, and, and it sounds like you bounced around. What, how did that help shape and form your character? I, I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella. I know that it, it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of, of different people because, you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time, so I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, I think it just 
built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and and uh, lifestyles. So I think it helped in that fact. And then it also gave me a, a sneak peek at um, at traveling. Um, it lets me it let me know that I like traveling. <laughs> So um, it, it actually, I guess, played a, a nice little part in, in my life. Well, and you grew up, you, you spent a lot of time, you said, in the summers in the Bronx. And uh, as a kid from northern New Jersey, one of the great pleasures of my life, a dear friend of mine said, let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge and let's mm-hmm. go to this place called Orchard Beach. And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, wow. did, you, did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach? No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there. Um, usually when I got to New York and I played, I stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother, uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well, if you ever get a chance, it still happens. And it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just won't <laughs> move. And I think part of the reason they won't move are Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody. It's required, and it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this, this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did, how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger room? Um, when I was 16 and at home in Chicago, um, at the time, I want to say that was around 98, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system. And I just figured that I could help out in some way. And I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members, uh, that went to jail for, like, punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well... What if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked. And then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. <laughs> and then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something, and that's basically how the anger room was born. Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the stuff people break, how you built this business, and where it is now. It sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon. And we're talking to Donna Alexander and her story from the New York Times, Anger Rooms, A Smashing New Way 
to relieve stress where people pay Donna a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to Our American Network to catch all that we do. More with Donna Alexander after these messages. Yeah. stories and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander and an article in the New York Times recently anger rooms a smashing new way to relieve stress was the headline and my goodness you've got to pick that up and read it and we just started laughing but there was something deep that was being captured here so Donna you you have your garage and people are coming in and what are they busting up in that garage um they were breaking things like TVs and computers um laptops, a lot of electronics and, uh, like, stuff, animals and things like that, whatever I can find um, around my neighborhood that we had, that we would have out for our bulk trash pickup days. And, and so this continues to happen, and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think, I need to get a separate location away from my garage? I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business. Um, I want to say is that I know is the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers, and they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the strangers started popping up, I'm like, okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that, hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up, and I, it turned out that I did. So. And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna, for the most part? Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to. <laughs> and so how do, how, do we, how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan? Did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business, and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital. Yeah. Um, going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just like jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional uh, bank financing or anything like that. What I did is I started uh, from the background work. So I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property. And then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level. So um, it, I wanted just to make it fair. 
And then once I incorporated all that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there, and it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000-plus no's and doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later um, that was willing to sublease to me. So my first space was a little bit over... Um, 780 square feet, and he just let us go uh, go for it. And when we did, uh, before I even opened the doors, I had accumulated a waiting list. So I had a four-month-long waiting list. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, I'm a landlord. I own some commercial property. And for anybody who's a landlord out there, you're always thinking, hmm, who do I want in my space? And <laughs> I, I guess you had to be thinking, or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking, she breaks stuff uh, next. I mean, you know, what if a brick goes through like the. Exactly. Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What Are, are you able to insure this business? Oh, yeah. That was the very next thing that um, that came up. And it was funny because I thought I got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord. And he was like, hey, you think you're going to need some insurance? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. So I, I searched. Uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance, but um, I was able to get us insured, fully insured, and even the insurance company, uh, when I had to explain to them what we do and how we do it, um, they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before. So um, it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business, and then they were able to uh, cover us. So, yeah, we definitely have. So, so your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops. The selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on well, what's happened in that industry before? You are mm-hmm. actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first. The first. Good for you. Yeah. So now let's Thank talk you. about your expansion plans. You, you, you succeed in this first location. And where is the actual location of that first store? Um, it's, in a, it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um, a suburb of Dallas. Yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. This is one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them. And who are your who are your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in. More men than women, old, young, corporate, uh, hipsters. Uh, are do hipsters <laughs> have anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so. I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, 
family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three. And we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents. And we've had people as old as 75 uh, come in and break stuff. So um, we just we just attract a lot of different people. <laughs> and do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this, Donna? I mean, do, do people come in more stressed and leave happier? Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe. So, um, from all of that, uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show, uh, a lot of therapeutic value. And I get people all the time, uh, that participate and they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It, it even helps out health wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there. Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, (laughs) your time uh, running in the anger room. Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space, and we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene, and I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down, and he picked up the telephone, and he pretended like he was talking to somebody, and he got mad because um, the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he, like, totally destroyed the room, like, to bits and pieces. It was awesome. <laughs> That's my most memorable one. <laughs> That's great. And tell me what your plans are, Donna. You're you're heading off to two new cities, and I assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger. I'm thinking that, you know, some parts of America might not have as much anger as others. But what's your goal? What what in your dream, in your in your vision, in your blueprint for success? What does that look like, Donna? Um my goal, I would love for the anger room just to be a household name. Um, I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um, and sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worry about getting judged or uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to, to let their hair down, and that's what I want. Well, when I'm in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. Angerroom.com. Angerroom.com is where you can go to learn more. And we want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So yeah, let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article of the New York Times, Anger Room is a Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress.
the Mississippi down in New Orleans. This is Our American Stories, and we're back with one of our favorite subjects and favorite topics, Random Acts of Kindness. You can find all sorts of these uplifting stories at randomactsofkindness.org. It's an inspiring resource and a great one to share with your kids. Also, make sure to leave any story you've encountered on there as well. And today we have a special installment of our Random Acts of Kindness segment. If you have any cops among your friends and family, you know they don't like to self-promote. So we call the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, Joe Gamaldi, and chatted for a bit about some of the good work their officers have been doing. And again, we can't overemphasize this. We have to practically pull these good stories out of them, not because they don't happen, because these are mostly public servants, a lot of them ex-militaries, we learn over and over again, and they just have servants' hearts. And servants don't brag. This is what, as Chris Rock always used to say, you're supposed to do these things. What, you want a cookie? (laughs) Exactly. I pay the rent. You're supposed to pay the rent. (laughs) These officers conduct themselves with a quiet humility, even the more senior ones, but the kindness rarely makes it into the press. You know, oftentimes what people hear about us in the community is is these harrowing tales of us, you, you know, saving someone or, you know, being involved in defending the, the defenseless. But, but sometimes our officers are out there just doing these random acts of kindness to really show the community that we're a part of the community just like they are and that we're people just like they are. Uh, we're not this uh, mysterious entity. Uh, we're people, and we have big hearts. And, you know, if you ask any police officer why he got into police work, the answer is always going to be, I wanted to help people. And one of the stories I wanted to share was about a sergeant we have that's assigned to the homeless outreach team. What they essentially do is they go out into the community and they make contact with the homeless and try to get them medical services. If they're in need of getting an ID so that they get into a shelter, they'll help them in any number of issues, Um, you know, even government assistance to try to get them off the streets and get them back into housing and get them back into the workforce as well. Well, in particular, uh, Sergeant Steve Wick saw a gentleman who was walking. He was homeless. He had no shoes on. Uh, you know, the man hadn't showered in a long time. Uh, his feet looked to be in bad condition. So Sergeant Steve Wick took it upon himself to take this gentleman to their, uh, to their facility. And then he proceeded to actually wash this gentleman's feet and clip his toenails for him. Now, I can't tell you the last time the man had, uh, had bathed his feet or anything like that, but this sergeant, what he did was basically show the world we're people and we just want to help folks. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, there's a biblical uh, angle to all this as well. You know, Jesus washed other people's feet, and and this sergeant stepped up and did the same for a homeless man. And uh, I think it really speaks to the type of people that we are. I'd say. And, my goodness, it is the kind of story you almost need to, out of almost social responsibility, push out there. Because, my goodness, folks don't think about those kinds of things. And most of us avoid those people on the street. And these officers not only have a heart for these folks, they're trying to find a home for them. Houston police officers feel the need to help and protect everyone, no matter how new they are to the city. There is Officer Lariano, who works down in our Central Patrol. Uh, he was just riding patrol on his normal day, and it happened to be extremely cold out in Houston, which is rare for us, but it does happen. <laughs> um, he saw some folks walking on the side of the road, just not with the proper clothes for the weather. And what really drew him to them was that they had two kids with them. One was 14 and one was two, and it was a family of four. 
So he approached them and made contact with them basically just to see if they were okay. You know, he didn't get a call. No one called this in. He took it upon himself to check on a family who were in basically shorts and a T-shirt in winter weather. When he approached them, uh, he started speaking with them, and they essentially told him that these were Cuban refugees. They had come up through South America, through Mexico, and had entered the country uh, legally uh, for asylum. And it was incredible that they had made it this far, number one. But now they here they were in Houston. They knew no one. Uh, no government services had kicked in yet. So they were just wandering the streets of Houston in the middle of the winter. And this officer, uh, you know, the type of guy he is and the heart that he has, he just couldn't see them. And he couldn't just drive past. He had to stop. And once he figured out what was going on, he could have left. He could have simply referred them to a shelter and been done. But that's not the type of people we are. So Officer Lariano took it upon himself to go to the store and buy $500 worth of winter clothing so that all, from his own pocket to make sure that all these, uh, these family members had clothing. But he didn't stop there. He then started calling every single shelter in the city to try to get them into a family shelter. And for those of you who don't know, it's very difficult to get an entire family. Usually they'll just take children or women, and they separate men and women. But they wanted to stay together as a family, obviously so, after the harrowing tale that they had told him. So he took it upon himself. He contacted these shelters. One said, well, we can let them stay on the property, but we can't let them stay in the building. So the officer took it upon himself once again to find a tent so that they could stay in a tent on the shelter property so at least they could stay together as a family. And most people would say that at this point the officer had done enough. He had done his duty. He, he had done everything that he could do for this family, but not our officers. He didn't stop there. The next day, he went back to that shelter. He checked on the family once again, and from there began working on establishing permanent housing for that family. And he also worked on making sure that the, all the government services were activated accordingly for someone in their position. And as a result of that, from the hard work of this officer, they were able to get them into permanent housing and actually get the um, father integrated into society to where he now has a job. And in this story, we learn that the Houston police officers are truly here to help. Just ask. There was actually a homeless mother, and she was the mother of two children, um, both children with disabilities. Uh, so you can imagine the difficulties that this mother already has, and, and now the fact that she's homeless on top of it. So she walked into a police station, and one of our officers, Officer Escobar, was working the front desk. She started talking to him, saying, you know, she needed help and that she was homeless and that she doesn't have, uh, you know, anywhere for her children to stay. Uh, and, of course, this officer did the same thing that, that Officer Lariano did at first, which was let's call these shelters and figure out a place that they could stay. But, of course, there was no room at any of these shelters for this woman and her two children. So instead, this officer took it upon himself to take money out of his own pocket to pay for, ho for a hotel room for several nights so that this family could have a roof over their head. But he didn't stop there. Him and his wife actually contacted a local radio station, and they, did, uh, they asked their family and friends and folks from, that were listening to the radio station to donate money. And they were able to essentially get this family into a hotel room for you know, a month by the, by the money they'd raised. And they continued to work with this family, and they've established, um, you know, a permanent residence for them now so that they no longer have to stay in a hotel room. They no longer have to stay on the street. And these children with disabilities and the mother that's taking care of them, they now have a roof over their head, all thanks to this officer taking the time to listen and pulling money out of his own pocket to make sure they had a place to stay. 
you know, she, she found that help, exactly what she was looking for at the police station. And I think it really sends a positive message to everybody in the community. When you need help, we are there. Whether it's a police station or whether you call 911, we are here to help you. You know, don't be fooled by what some folks in the media or some politicians may tell you. We are here to help you. And if you need help, all you have to do is reach out. And it's so true. And they are there when you call. And they do come and respond to dangerous situations when we ask them to. And they don't, I don't think they care if we say thank you. I mean, it'd be a nice thing to do. But we say thank you here on Our American Stories. And this is our way of showing gratitude to all of the officers who do all the things they do. And these particular ones here at the Houston Houston PD. And we were just hearing from the second vice president of the Houston Police Officers Union, Joe Gamaldi. And we're going to be always telling stories about cops and first responders as long as we do our American stories. Our random acts of kindness segment, as always. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. More after these messages. American stories, and from time to time, we like to bump in and out with some of the music of Gary Clark Jr., a young man who has risen to the top of the blues scene in just a few years. That's who we're listening to now with his track, Third Stone from the Sun. Gary Lee Clark Jr. was born in February 15, 1984, in Austin, Texas, one of America's great music towns. He won a Grammy in 2013 for Best Traditional R&B Performance. Eric Clapton said that hearing Gary Clark Jr. made him want to play the guitar again. Buddy Guy says that this kid could be the one to save the blues. Not bad accolades for a 32-year-old musician. In this documentary from Rolling Stone, we meet Gary Clark Jr. in the garage of someone he calls his biggest musical influence, Eve Monse, a white girl he met in the third grade who played the guitar. Here these two reminisce about those early years of their friendship together. Can I use this thing? Sure, yeah. Remember the little 10 watt amp I used to have? Was it a crate? Yeah, a one. trying to compete with this thing. <laughs> I'm turning like all the way up. And the Grammy goes to Gary Clark Jr. Please come home. I'm so, I have no idea what to say. This is amazing. Um, Eve Monse, I wouldn't be playing guitar. I wouldn't be playing music. If it weren't for her, she took me to my first gig, and it all started from there. So what did we play back then? I kind of felt like we, we would just, you know, play... 
yeah. play stuff. And I remember sort of, hearing you play that stuff. When, yeah, yeah. On the house. That was kind of what perked my ear. I was like, what are y'all doing out there? <laughs> you know, people ask me, I'm like, who's your musical influence? Who do you look up to? It's like, that was her. You know, from my window, sitting around, you know, doing my homework or whatever I'm doing, I'm hearing this. I'm like, I want to go be a part of that. And she let me be a part of it. One, two, three, four. Third grade uh, was when we moved to Austin and from Houston. And um, Gary was one of the one of the kids in the class. I guess I think we were like in the middle of reading like Hank the Cow Dog or something. And she was introduced to the class. Hey, this is a new student from uh, Houston. Her name's Eve Monse. Came and sat in the circle and found out she lived right down the street. They went through three schools, you know, together, the elementary, you know, middle school and high school, and, and uh, doing basketball and doing other activities at school. He was a brother she never had, I guess you could say, you know. Uh, for Gary, it was like, and she was like another sister. Around 11, my parents got me a, a guitar for my birthday, and to have that sound, to be able to move your fingers on this instrument and make this sound was like the coolest thing in the world. I thought it was cool that, you know, she could hear a record or whatever and be able to translate and figure out how to play it. I just was drawn in right away. I just wanted to be around it all the time. The pair became obsessed with a bootleg tape of 60s footage of blues greats like T-Bone Walker performing in Germany, rewinding and watching and rewatching licks again and again. Here again is Gary Clark Jr. and Eve Monse. We'd hang out and we'd play in the garage, just, you know, we could play loud and... It was just kind of a place to escape, you know, uh, everything else that was going on and just do our thing. You know, I really just liked playing. I was more into just the wailing and, and all that. And she really started to get into the history. And the blues, the musician, tells a story and lives a story through his music. There was a, a period in the 60s where they would bring these awesome musicians from America over to Germany and film them. There's this bootleg tape going around, and we ended up with this copy, and, and it was, you know, we'd never seen footage of T-Bone Walker before or any of these guys. So we would watch this stuff, and, you know, some of that stuff, T-Bone Walker's pretty fast, so we're like, okay, wait, back it up, okay. As I go, oh, 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 yeah, I got it. Okay, you know, so we try to learn from the tape. That was the thing that we shared that uh, none of our other friends shared with us was the music. I thought I was going to be the next boys to men or something. You know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Being here in this garage kind of helped change my mind about what I wanted to do with my life, you know. The guitar, you know, the rock and roll of it, it was edgier, it was cooler, it was more rebellious and I was like yeah I'm gonna go do that here Eve's parents Eve and Gary Clark Jr. talk about winning talent shows in school they also started playing in bars when they were in the eighth grade um, in middle school they decided to form a band for the talent show we played the pride and joy Steve Ray Vaughan that was like you know one of the earliest on stage moments that we had 
they won first place in that. And the audience was just screaming like they were at some big, huge rock concert. One of those moments where I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Crazy. I, I guess I still haven't like soaked up that I'm sitting here, <laughs> and it's been so long. And what, seeing the parents here, I'm thinking about, you know, being too young to drive and hopping in the car and going to Antone's or Joe's generic bar. We're kids, and then going to school, and people would be like, "What did you do last night?" Like you have no idea, you know. They were they're playing till two two in the morning. We had to you know, stay right there with them. You know, it was 21, so uh, except for them two. Here, Gary Clark Jr. and Eve talk about how things all started to change when he started playing at Antone's in Austin, and they began going their separate ways. And then, and then Gary got a letter in the mail from Eric Clapton. For me, the moment where it started to become real was playing shows at Antone's. And it was really jumping here for many years. Clifford would go out of his way to hire everybody he could. You didn't come play in Antones because you were trying to help your career. You came to Antones and played because it was fun, and uh, you, you never knew who was going to show up. Hanging around Antones, you got to be introducing us like James Cotton, and Pine Top Perkins, Hubert Sumlin. The further I was going, it seemed like the history was coming up. I mean, I don't think we expected to feel so welcomed into the whole community. We were like the new blood, you know, so they supported that. When we first started playing, we didn't know anybody. It was like we only knew each other, and that was it. And then we started meeting these other people. We kind of started to go separate ways. She started playing with a different band, and we just grew up, moved out of the house, friends, and parties, and girls, and things like that. I spent years playing at the Continental Club, playing at Antones. Kind of the starving artist, but didn't want to do anything else. You know, I wanted to play music. That was it. 2010, I get a call from Doyle Bramhall. He says, I think, uh, I think Eric Clapton uh, might call you for this Crossroads Festival. Have you heard of it? Sure enough, I get a letter in the mail from the dude inviting me to come to his festival. 28,000 people or something. Which is, I've never seen that many people in my life. And all of a sudden, I'm standing in front of them and they're looking at me like, what are you going to do? I hope you're awesome. Get lost in this city, try to find myself. I meet some guys from the label. A little while later, put out my first record called Black and Blue, and things just kind of been crazy since. And here Eve talks about her band, while she has yet to reach the level of fame that Gary has achieved. He says that he wouldn't be where he is now without her. Then we hear them jam a little bit to close out this great story. My main band's called Even the Exiles. I've been in the studio, we're working on a new record, and I feel like anything I'll ever do, it'll still have that Blues Foundation. Eve is my partner in crime. She knows more about and understands more about what I'm doing than I do, I think. 
if it hadn't been for her mentorship and friendship and support, I don't think I would be sitting here in this chair. This was the cool place to be for me. I mean, playing music, playing basketball. Yeah. Just kind of walking back with my little amp or my guitar back to my house, thinking like, yeah, this is, you know, what now? You know what I mean? So, I don't know. This was the happy place, I guess. I guess so. Guy Clark Jr., an amazing American blues talent from humble beginnings, with a humble heart who isn't afraid to give credit where credit is due. What a great story about music, about guitars, about friendship. And by the way, we never mentioned Gary Clark Jr. is black and Eve Monsey is white. And they don't care. And we love telling those kinds of stories here on Our American Stories all the time. Because in America, most of the time, almost all the time, we just don't care. <laughs> 